1: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
2: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X, and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at
0: ibm.com consulting. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, Robert. Yes. I want to put you in a strange scenario. Okay. I want you to imagine yourself an astronaut in a near-future dystopia. In fact, a, a truly dystopian scenario from my perspective. Easy to do. I, this is an exercise I try to employ you know, every day. Okay. Now, you might be going to a kind of Orwellian place, like the the totalitarian hell. Don't go there. Okay. Or you might be going to like the Aldous Huxley place where we're all just medicated and placated and and have an empty soulless bliss. That's good, too. Not there. I want you to put yourself in the actuarial capitalist bureaucracy of the private insurance market. (laughs) Okay.
1: So so, so we land in a place that's maybe a little more comfortable but a little more uh, mundane.
0: Yeah. So specifically what you're trying to do is – Purchase a suite of insurance policies that will protect you and your family if you suffer death, disability, or a serious medical condition in your line of work. Okay. So during a brief interview, there's a policy agent who has to ask you a few questions to determine whether they can sell you a policy and what your rate's going to be. So you get the standard ones. Are you a smoker? No. Heavy drinker? No. IV drug user? Wait. what? This is the future, right? (laughs) Yes. No. Okay. Uh, duelist and or gunslinger.
1: Um, this is the future. Yeah. Um, I'll say
0: sometimes. (laughs) How about drag race junkie? No. Knight of the sacred art of the motor joust. Um, no. Do you work with high voltage nitroglycerin or flying guillotines? Not currently. And does your church congregation practice snake handling? Not bio snakes. So we're good. (laughs) Right. You only get those uh, those safe synthetic snakes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we get,
1: you know, the spirit of the practice is still true. It's but, not uh, the Middle Ages. Yeah. Come on. Exactly. It's the future.
0: Okay, so we're all the way through the uh, interview except for one final question. Are you now or have you ever been on the waiting list for a space colonization project? Ah, and there you got me. Yeah, I got you. Sorry. That's the kicker because, Robert, I know that you are, in fact, currently an in astronaut training. <laughs> to become one of the members of the first wave of semi-permanent Mars colonists. Uh, And depending on circumstances, you might be spending the next 6 to 12 years and maybe the rest of your natural life in a habitat on the surface of a red, red wasteland. And unfortunately, you're well aware of this and well aware of the fact that if you answer yes to this question, your monthly payments are going to be so high as to defeat the entire purpose of the insurance policy.
1: Right, because this is a, a risky venture. This is uh, this is even beyond drag racing and motor jousting and what have you.
0: This is uh, this is this is a risky lifestyle to take on. How true that is. Now you could do what Neil Armstrong and the rest of the crew of Apollo Eleven did. Did, did you ever hear about this story? No, I, the the whole insurance policies for astronaut is, a, is is an area I've I've not explored. Well, when the crew of the Apollo Eleven mission who were going to be the first people to land on the moon, realized that life insurance policies would be prohibitively expensive for them, they came up with an interesting idea to to make a policy of their own. So during the month when they were in quarantine before launch, and, and this is true, they signed hundreds of autographed covers, they were called, which were these envelopes postmarked with historically significant dates on them. Uh, and they were uh, they were autographing these covers and then they would deliver them all to their families. This way, they knew that if they didn't survive the mission, the sale of autographed memorabilia would at least be enough to keep their families afloat. Ah, So since I'm probably not going to get this insurance policy because of my uh, <laughs>
1: my my aspirations uh, to uh, to become a Mars colonist, I can at least set up the possibility that my family can make money off the fact that I, Am slash was the first man to die on Mars. Right. Yeah. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, the, the the motion pictures that would be made about me. Yeah. The, the rights uh, to your life. Yeah. Who's going to play you dying on Mars? I, I I hope everybody. They would do like a, a Bob <laughs> Dylan kind of thing, where different actors and actresses right. would would play me at different stages of my
0: demise. Right. Kate Blanchett is you gasping on the Red Rocks. I, I think that's perfect. That would be pretty cool. But anyway. Put yourself back in the scenario. So the insurance agent, that, that question might actually cause you to have some second thoughts about your plans to go to Mars uh, because of what your body is going to be up against. Now, you know a few things, but you might not realize the entire spate of potential challenges to your health and well-being while living on Mars, well, while bound for Mars and once you get there, especially since you couldn't wait out the years of preparation it was going to take to be part of the joint NASA-JAXA-ESA mission, and instead you have signed up with a kind of sketchy-sounding, (laughs) non-profit-based Mars colonization outfit, because they promised liftoff within 18 months, and you're in a hurry. (laughs) Uh, Though from what you've seen so far, they might be cutting some corners. Uh. Yeah, I was very skeptical of the uh, the the wooden
1: spaceship approach that they were uh, they were looking to employ.
0: <laughs> Did you ever read that what was it? The, there was a proposition that uh that the movie Alien 3 was originally going to oh, be yeah. about a wooden planet. Oh yeah, like go. Uh, yeah, Wooden Space Station Man by Monks. And, I always yeah. loved that idea. It's pretty, I wish pretty well. they'd made that. Anyway, back to the story. So, uh, this is a good jumping off point to talk about the the real thrust of today's episode, which is the question what are all of the health challenges that our bodies might face over the course of a long-term Mars colonization effort, both traveling to Mars and living there for years at a time, or maybe for a whole lifetime? And are there any ways we know of to overcome these challenges?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a big question, one that uh, that uh, that NASA and other space exploration uh, authorities continue to to look into because. That's kind of the the next big phase, right? That's the, the the dream. That's our generation's moon. The idea of actually making it. To the red planet, of leaving this world that we've evolved to to thrive on and to thrive within a very slim portion of the atmosphere, and also only in certain regions of the planet, <laughs> to leave this world, travel through the uh, the unforgiving void of space to a rather
0: lifeless world, and somehow make a go of it. Yeah, well, we certainly don't want to discourage Mars exploration with this podcast, but I, I think it's just helpful while encouraging the exploratory and scientific spirit to also realize what a truly horrible place Mars (laughs) is. So I think we should start with some of the more obvious and more often talked about issues, such as radiation and uh, reduced gravity, microgravity, or zero gravity, as the case may be, and and then move on to some of the more obscure concerns. So the Mm -hmm. biggest health concern, quite obviously, for Mars travelers is going to be radiation exposure.
1: Indeed, we live in a kind of privileged situation here on Earth because we're we're largely shielded from some of the, the harsher uh, radiation that can reach us uh, in the form of cosmic radiation and uh, in a lot of the solar radiation.
0: Yeah, that's certainly true. And we actually would have to deal with radiation in two different scenarios that both apply to the Mars colonist. So there's going to be the radiation on the way to Mars, mm-hmm. And the radiation once you get there, because it's a sad fact that Mars is not shielded the way Earth is. So both cosmic and solar radiation immediately become a problem once you leave the neighborhood of Earth. Uh, Even on Earth's surface, we're actually exposed to a steady ambient level of radiation from the sun and from the larger universe. That would be solar radiation and cosmic radiation, uh, respectively. But Earth's atmosphere and magnetosphere, so that's the magnetic field generated by the dynamo effect when the Earth's liquid metal uh, outer core rotates around the inner core. Mm -hmm. An effect that most planets uh, that we know of do not feature. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That protects us from the danger. So most of the incoming radiation gets deflected or absorbed, and we don't really have to worry about it. Even astronauts on the International Space Station, which is on average two hundred and forty nine miles above the surface of Earth, even though they're exposed to more radiation than we get on the surface, they're still shielded by Earth's magnetosphere, which extends thousands of miles out into space. yeah, it,
1: when you take that into account, I mean as ho- as hostile and unforgiving as uh, as the orbital environment is, mm-hmm. it makes it seem like uh, you know, like a five year old uh, camping in his parents' backyard. Uh, compared to actually venturing beyond the magnetosphere uh, into this unprotected region of space.
0: Well, it's the equivalent of, like, wading into three feet of water as opposed to swimming across the ocean. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, so once you're traveling in outer space on the way to Mars, you no longer have these protective barriers. And even once you get to Mars... As we said, things aren't going to be much better because Mars does not have a strong magnetosphere like Earth. And its atmosphere is absolutely puny. It's Mm -hmm. puny and thin. It's about 1% the thickness of Earth's atmosphere. So you're just not going to get much protection from radiation on Mars. And there are ways to get around this. So people have been coming up with all kinds of habitat and spaceship designs that would try to shield astronauts from the various types of radiation they would encounter. So some ideas are uh, how to to make shielding around a spaceship that would absorb cosmic rays and try to prevent secondary radiation from shooting off and irradiating you. One interesting idea I've read about is surrounding the crew capsule with organic materials and water. So all (laughs) of the food... And human waste and water and things like that would go would sort of form a a weird moist bio shield around you.
1: Oh wow! So in a, in a sense, you would be sailing to Mars in a protective bubble of your own uh, sewage.
0: Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, like it's, it's sewage to the future. It, <laughs> it'll save your life, hopefully. But we need to do more research to determine exactly what the risks are and if we can create a system like this that's economically feasible and will keep astronauts safe. Because another problem is, sure, you can build a radiation shield. I mean, we build stuff like that all the time. We have nuclear power plants, people who work Mm -hmm. with radiation, and they, they can do that with relative protection. But it's expensive to ship stuff into space. And the more bulk you're adding to your ship to shield yourself, the more trouble you're making this mission,
1: yeah, and as in a continuing theme that we'll we'll keep coming back to here is is so much of this work is still ongoing we're still trying to find the answers mm-hmm. uh, still trying to figure out the best methods and dealing with a, a limited ability to experiment on them uh,
0: in real life totally true and unfortunately, it's not even just the standard radiation risks that we're going to be dealing with during the trip to Mars so a standard trip to Mars might take somewhere around six months. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is uh, an estimate you see thrown out a lot. And during those six months and once you get, get to Mars, it's not just the increased risk of cancer and other standard dangers associated with radiation. Astronauts bound for Mars might face even weirder and more disturbing dangers, for example, brain damage. So there is some evidence that the kinds of cosmic rays that will be cutting through your body on a regular basis while you're on the way to Mars can produce brain damage leading to symptoms somewhat analogous to neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Uh, and I, I read a few articles about this. So medical doctors have noted that some patients who receive radiation to the head in the course of treating brain cancer mm-hmm display side effects like increased confusion and other cognitive impairments, and cosmic rays might do pretty much the same thing to us. So in recent experiments, researchers have subjected mice to simulated cosmic rays. And six weeks after acute exposure to this radiation, the mice exhibited decreased cognitive performance as well as physiological changes to brain tissue. And I just want to read this a uh, quote from the abstract of the study it was reductions in dendritic complexity and spine density along the medial prefrontal cortical neurons known to mediate neurotransmission specifically interrogated by our behavioral tasks so so your ability to behave with intelligence could be impaired by the time you arrive at mars mm-hmm. Sh- showing up at mars brain damage is not a good idea. Yeah, yeah, right when a lot of the the, the really heavy work is is about to begin. Yeah, and so a couple of notes. These are mice brains, not human brains, Mm -hmm. and we know there's some difference there. Also, we we should be able to protect against this, like I was saying earlier, if we prepare and invest enough. If we do the research, figure out what the vulnerabilities are, and build the right kind of shielding, but again, it's an economics problem. Can we invest enough resources to make sure people are safe from these effects? If you're going on the the non profit cutting corners get you there fast mission that <laughs> might not be the case
1: yeah i don't know if the balsa wood uh shielding is going to work in the <laughs> outfit that i've been uh, i've been reading the brochure about
0: yeah but of course it's not uh just the radiation that will threaten our bodies on the trip to mars what about the effects of microgravity
1: yeah this is a big one and, and again i'm sure this is one that uh that everyone's familiar with on some level uh, you know it often shows well, I, I, I was about to say it often shows up in science fiction, but more more often it's ignored in science fiction, <laughs> the, yeah. the whole issue of, of, of gravity and the lack of gravity in space flight. Generally, you just throw in some sort of magical artificial gravity scenario mm-hmm. and you don't worry about it.
0: I always respect the science fiction universes that have some kind of rotating device on the ship to generate the, the force of gravity. Yeah, yeah. It's where it's not just the Millennium Falcon and you can walk around wherever.
1: Yeah, because the the bottom line, of course, is that we evolved on a world with a certain amount of gravitational pull. And we're
0: completely adapted to it.
1: Yeah, everything about our form. I mean, gravity dictates the, the form of our muscle groups, uh, and gravity uh, alone forces a certain level of exercise on you at all times. So even if you're just you know standing in your apartment... Otherwise, doing nothing, your body's still working with gravity. And on a microscopic level, our skeleton constantly alters its structure to bear the gravitational forces of our planet. Uh, even our organs work with with uh, with Earth gravity. I mean, our heart beats against gravity when it pushes blood um, up to our brain. So, I mean, mm-hmm. we are we are just steeped in it. We often take it for granted. I mean, we, we almost always take it for granted.
0: But we are creatures that have evolved to live with our gravity, with Earth gravity. Yeah, you don't think about it, but your body is constantly having to compensate Mm -hmm. for gravity. I mean, the gravity wants to pull you toward the floor. The gravity wants to pull all your blood into your feet. So like you said, your circulatory system, like you mentioned, has to pump more blood pressure into the top of your body just to make sure you get an even circulation, all because of gravity.
1: Indeed. So when we we send astronauts into space when they go into orbit um they experience a certain amount of um uh, muscle and skeletal system deterioration it's called getting soft yeah yeah and literally that's that's what happens uh the muscles especially the uh, the underutilized leg muscles become flabby lose tone and mass uh muscular atrophy occurs uh bone becomes weaker uh because of the loss of the minerals calcium potassium and sodium um, and the, the bone degeneration can reduce bone in the lower uh, limbs by up to 10%. So it's essentially a form of osteoporosis known as spaceflight osteopenia.
0: Yeah, and astronauts have to do tons of exercise just to prevent this from being worse than it is. Yeah, there
1: are a number. Like, there's a lot of exercise. Um, also, you, you, astronauts will uh, generally take uh, various vitamins and even some pharmaceuticals. Uh, particularly, they'll take calcium and vitamin D. Uh, NASA often, uh, you know, tends to have their their astronauts take clay to help to supposedly help with calcium retention, and then also uh, and it's thought that osteoporosis drugs can be helpful in mitigating this as well. Hmm. Uh, um, it's interesting. The calcium is is especially a problem. The calcium loss in the bones. Ninety nine percent of our body's calcium is stored in the skeleton, and when we lose it in low gravity, it enters the bloodstream, Ugh. where uh, an excess of calcium can cause a, a host of unpleasantries. You know, it can be as mild as just you know, diarrhea, but you don't need another reason to have diarrhea in space.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't need a, <laughs> you don't need a reason to have any condition in space. That plays on another problem mm-hmm. that's not a medical condition in itself but just the fact that if you're headed toward mars or on mars you are so far away from the nearest medical facility yeah you've got to have it all in the back ready ready to go yeah what if you get a kidney stone on mars Mm
1: -hmm. you know and the other thing about the the exercise because it's easy to imagine all right we'd have our 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 drug hampers is just completely filled up and our, our vitamins and our, um, and our osteoporosis medications, but then and we'll just be hitting the treadmill the whole time. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've been working with this problem for decades and, and, uh, and, and experts still aren't really convinced, you know, what the best method of exercise is and if exercise really helps to mitigate this. Cause you're, again, you're talking about constant ambient gravitational pressure on the body. Mm-hmm. And that's not something you can, you can really replicate with our current systems of, you know, treadmills or even some of these, uh, like these force uh, suits that the, uh, the the Russians experimented with in the past, where there would be like this, uh, where, where just the act of moving your arm would have a certain amount of of, uh, of exercise. Right.
0: The, yeah. The resistance suits. Yeah. The resistance read about those. Suits. Those are interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, there's a space musical by the name of um, The American Astronaut, and there's a character that shows up. Ah, uh, named body Suit, and he's this. Uh, <laughs> he, he's been living in deep space for a long time, and has uh, has one of these uh, resistance suits on to keep his body strong. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, his father is just this uh, stringy uh, <laughs> creature that's completely <laughs> lost all of his bone mass and has this enormous swollen head. It's a uh, yeah. You know, it, uh, it's it's a common uh, exploration in sci-fi. I guess some of the the headier sci-fi like. Uh, uh, Dan Simon's, uh, Hyperion books. There's a, there's like a race of humans that live in weightless environments and they're oh. very, very tall and elongated.
0: Creepy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, actually, if you've ever seen live footage of astronauts on the International Space Station, mm-hmm. you might have noticed that they look a little weird. Like, yeah. What, what exactly is wrong with their bodies? That's an effect of weightlessness where, uh, where body fluids are redistributed up from the legs and into the chest, shoulders, and head. So if their face looks puffy and they look, they've look, they got the kind of bodybuilder shoulders, that's because of the microgravity environment.
1: Yeah, there's so many things we don't even necessarily think about. Uh, one that always amazes me is uh how your bladder fills up in a weightless
3: environment. Oh, I've because, never heard about this.
1: Yeah, because we've evolved to live in gravity. So as our bladder fills up, that water is subject to gravity and uh, as it starts getting a little bit uh, a little bit towards the uh, the tipping point, we realize, "Hey, I need to go to the bathroom. I should go and relieve this." Uh-huh. But if you're in a weightless environment, oh no. it's not filling from the bottom up. It's just kind of filling all around. So astronauts don't often real Realize they have to go urinate until they've reached like maximum capacity, like like almost you know dangerous levels of full bladder. Oh man, yeah. So that's it's kind terrifying. of yeah. So it kind of transforms uh you know an adventurous adult into a toddler who suddenly realizes <laughs> ah I've got to go to the bathroom and there's nothing I can do to stop it. All right,
0: but that's all just in spaceflight when you're in this effectively zero g environment, the microgravity environment, floating around. When you're on the International Space Station for a number of months, you can eventually come back to Earth and retrain. Your body might never be exactly the same as it was before mm-hmm. you went up to the ISS, but you can, you can regain a lot of lost capacity. One question I have is, to what extent is that going to be true once astronauts get out of the ship after six months in weightlessness and then walk around on Mars? Because Mars is not Earth. Right. 62%
1: less gravity there. So, you you you're, you would certainly to leave behind this uh, this weightless environment of uh, of space travel, but you're not you're certainly not going back to Earth levels of gravity. You're going back to something far lighter.
0: Yeah, and so what is the effect of living in sixty two percent less gravity for years at a time or the rest of your life? I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question yet. Yeah, it's just not something we've we've dealt with thus far,
1: and 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 this is again an area where our our research into ways to mitigate uh, spaceflight osteopenia uh, has to improve. Is we have to f- figure out better ways to tackle it with improved exercise system, improved pharmaceuticals,
0: and, mm-hmm. and vitamin regimens. So. It's it's hard to say. Yeah, and then there are a whole host of other effects we observe in astronauts in weightless environments that are not even related to the the decay of uh, muscle and bone density. One example would be vision. Have you ever read about astronaut vision impairment? No. Yeah, this is a thing. So on Earth, like we were saying, our circulatory system has adapted to give us even blood circulation despite the effects of gravity yanking our blood toward the ground. So without the gravity your body overcompensates for gravity that isn't there and puts way too much blood into your head. Oh, wow. So you can essentially red out. Without, the, without the aid of a, of a jet fighter. You, well, the, the, it's actually the continuous effects of this increased blood pressure in the head that cause the biggest problem. One common, uh, symptom is farsightedness. Another thing is this thing called cotton wool spots in your field of vision. Uh, and that's caused by damage to the nerve fibers in the back of the eye. Hmm. So now we've got a few things. When you get out of the ship, so you've just arrived at Mars, you might have decreased Bone and muscle density. Yes. Possibly brain damage if you didn't take, you know, your proper radiation shielding and impaired vision. That's not a way to build a colony. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I don't know if the impaired vision effects would carry over onto Mars either or to what extent the, the Mars gravity would help solve the problem. Again, we don't know about the long-term effects of living on reduced gravity.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will consider the Martian dust.
4: Tired of wandering the aisles at Walgreens trying to find the best deals? Well, we've got something that will make your shopping experience a whole lot sweeter. Introducing Drop, the app that rewards you with free gift cards just for doing your everyday shopping, whether it's groceries, toiletries, or your favorite snacks. With DROP, every purchase earns you points towards fantastic rewards. Download the DROP app now. Use code DROP55 when you sign up to get $5 in points.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential... Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we're back as we've uh, been discussing.
1: Yeah, you've, we've arrived at Mars, and we've we've just been ravaged by uh, microgravity, uh, radiation, and now we're actually on the
0: surface. And here comes the Martian dust. Right. So we've dealt with the main threats to health and well-being that people bring up, the the microgravity and the radiation. But it turns out there are a bunch of other ones. And and the Martian dust is a particularly interesting one to me. In December of 1972, the astronauts Harrison Schmitt and Eugene Cernan of Apollo 17 landed on the moon, and they were carrying out some surface missions. And once upon returning... from the taurus littrow Valley, which is close to the Sea of Serenity on the moon,
3: mm-hmm.
0: the two astronauts re-entered the lunar module. And Harrison Schmidt reported respiratory distress from inhaling particles of moon dust that they had tracked into the capsule with them. Uh, and to make it sound cute, he called it lunar dust hay fever. <laughs> that does sound cute, but the actual situation isn't so cute. Uh, And while working on the surface of the moon, the Apollo astronauts have have noticed a consistently annoying and troubling thing about the moon. It's covered in this sticky, abrasive dust that, true fact, smells like gunpowder, they all report, and it gets all over everything. Astronauts found that it's these sharp-edged, abrasive dust grains, almost, almost like a tiny shards of glass and they would embed themselves in surfaces. And it was just impossible to prevent astronauts from bringing it with them when they returned from outside. And this has proven a tough problem for anybody imagining a return trip to the moon or a moon colony, because if the trip involves any extravehicular activity, moon colonists are going to have this dust problem. Yeah, I've read
1: about uh, some of this b- before. It's uh, it's it's interesting. You just see those images of the moon, and you you kind of default to imagining it as being covered with you know just sand, or maybe maybe like a fine flower uh, <laughs> kind of c- consistency, but it's uh, it's it's rough. Stuff and it yeah. gets over everything. Another aspect is that, uh, it, again, it's dark. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. and it's, 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 it's dark gray kind of material. And, uh, you're on the moon and it, say, it coats your instruments, uh, it coats your equipment, maybe it, co- it coats your spacesuit and it's going to cause whatever it's coating to start heat up, to heat up in the sun because it's, the, 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 the dust itself will absorb the solar radiation. So suddenly it's like you're wearing a black coat on a sunny day and you're just uh, getting hotter and hotter because of the dust
0: on you yeah and you don't want to sweat like a pig on the moon
1: no yeah so you could you know essentially
0: wind up cooked via lunar dust (laughs) scary thought but that's the moon Mm -hmm. mars might have a similar problem but basically even more horrible so one problem is fine grains of silicate materials Uh, so here on earth Human miners often suffer from a disease called silicosis. If you're working in like a mine or a quarry or if you work in tunneling, drilling, sandblasting, glassworks, any of these things, your work environment can produce extremely fine-grained particles of silicon dioxide or silica dust in the air. And silica is a totally common mineral. It's not one of those things to get upset about as a material itself. Sand is mostly silica. If ingested in reasonable quantities orally, it's non-toxic. But if you breathe in extremely fine particles of silica dust, they can become embedded in your lungs and your body can't remove them. So depending on the level and length of exposure, this can lead to irritation, swelling, and difficulty breathing, and eventually to progressive massive fibrosis, which means your lungs are pretty much destroyed. And long-term exposure to crystalline silica is also considered a cancer risk. This is, this is a bad recipe for lung health. Martian soil contains fine-grained silicate particles that are largely different from the particles of quartz silica that we'd risk breathing on Earth, though they might produce similar or even worse effects. So years ago, researchers at Stony Brook University in New York pulverized samples of the most common basaltic minerals you'd find in the Martian soil, feldspar, pyroxene, and olivine, uh, to see what would happen when this faux Martian dust reacted with moisture the way it would with the moisture in your lungs if you breathe it in. And the results were kind (laughs) of gross. A mixture of five milliliters of water with a couple hundred milligrams of the synthetic Mars dust reacted to create hydrogen peroxide. So Mm. fizzy, fizzy party times, uh, hydroxyl and a negatively charged oxygen ion called superoxide. Not not really things you want in your lungs. (laughs) In addition to this, scientists believe Martian soil contains perchlorates, which have detrimental effects on the thyroid and hormone production in the human body. So not only is it likely to cause uh, irritation and, and lung diseases if inhaled chronically over time, it can also poison you. And it gets worse. On Mars, there are dust storms of titanic proportions. You don't really have to worry about dust storms on the moon. On Mars you do, the dust storms there can become so bad they can become planet wide dust storms engulfing oh, wow. the entire surface. So welcome to Planet Poison Storm. <laughs> uh, don't breathe in. As far as I'm aware, there is no known solution to this problem yet, except maybe just never going outside. I guess if you seal yourself off in an airtight container and you know you're never going in or out, then you could probably be okay. But then what are you doing, right, as a colonist? Right. So I've read in the past, I think in the context of moon exploration, about NASA researchers looking into designs for things like handheld vacuums and airlocks. And I don't know where that research is today, but it seems like even that would have trouble completely solving the dust problem.
1: Yeah, cause you only, what are you just gonna bring uh, an entire ship of vacuums that steadily break down from uh, all the particles that are yeah. uh,
0: surging through the system? Yeah, and then there's the question of how the dust would actually affect the equipment in mm-hmm. your habitat. Uh, so is the dust going to be clogging air filters? Is it gonna be getting into instruments that you need to perform your scientific work? And so, by and large, the dust is gonna be a huge problem and it's something we really need to think about if we're actually going to be sending people to Mars.
1: And that's assuming that the uh, the dust doesn't suddenly turn into a giant hand <laughs> like the, uh, the Stephen King short story Beach World, right? Yeah. Yeah, because then it's a whole set of uh, set of problems
0: in addition to just uh, breathing it in. Or, or wait a minute, what does the dust do in Mission to Mars? Ooh,
1: you know, I don't think I ever saw Mission to Mars. Oh,
0: uh, well, you're one of the lucky ones. <laughs>
1: All right, well, uh, the next uh, thing to think about you know at, on the surface seems a little less intensive uh, you know it's not uh, it 's not as as crazy as dust that 's gradually killing you or uh, or the loss of bone mass or even uh, the harmful effects of radiation, but it is very real, and you can think of it as just an additional thing you would have to deal with on Mars mm-hmm. and that is how life on Mars would affect your circadian rhythm. Um, and, and I, I have to admit, I never really thought about this myself, but a Mars day, called a soul, is 39 minutes and 35 seconds
0: longer than an Earth day. Ooh, that, that's just close enough that it seems maybe even worse than if it were way different.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it, I, yeah, and on the surface, it doesn't, maybe, it maybe doesn't sound like much. You might even yeah. think, oh, it's a good thing I can watch one extra episode of, uh, of my favorite hour-long show, Sam's <laughs> Commercials, right? It's right. 40 minutes, I can get it in, right? Maybe 40 minutes of extra sleep. But, uh, we actually have some experience dealing with the problems of, uh, an extra 40-odd minutes in the day. Uh, as every time NASA lands a rover on Mars, operations teams have to adapt to the Martian schedule. Huh. There's a there's a great article that deals with this uh, that appeared in Scientific American by Katie. Uh, it's an article by Katie Wirth titled "Step into the Twilight Zone: Can Earthlings Adjust to a Longer Day on Mars?" And uh, she describes how those extra forty minutes, you know, they weren't bad at first. Mm-hmm. But you have the you have this crew and they're dealing with. With, with the Martian day, they're dealing with the Earth day, and they're dealing with both across multiple time zones. So the 40 minutes just begins to add up over time. It oh, just ends up imagine. causing you know, high levels of exhaustion. So they end up trying limiting shifts to four days in a row, no more. But even this uh, causes the Martian
0: minutes to catch up mm-hmm. with you after time. Um, yeah, because you have to imagine it. it's not just that you would get a, an extra long day one day and then you get to sleep and reset. Every day, this accumulation of the extra 40 minutes is adding on to the accumulation of the day before. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like continuous jet lag. Yeah. <laughs> now, we're in for some good news
1: because okay. uh, one of the things is once you actually get to Mars – you're at least going to have uh you know cycles of day and night to tie in with your circadian rhythm so it's thought that you would probably adjust pretty well to this extra 40 minutes once you're on the planet mm-hmm. now of course, one of the problems is that you've, uh, of course, you've been traveling through space completely cut off from cycles of night and day unless there's some sort of artificial stimulation um, uh-huh. of your circadian rhythm. <laughs> and uh, and you're still going to have to, on some level, deal with time back home. Uh, and, and this is where you get into questions about, all right, what, what's going to be the degree of communication with the home world? Uh, I'm guessing, especially in an early, low-budget Visit to Mars, it's going to be pretty minimal. You're not going to have any direct Skype conversations with your family back home.
0: No, you're just going to be broadcasting your reality television show.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, with with some tape delay, right? Yeah. But um, but the people back home, the people looking after you and uh, and and seeing how operations are going, they're going to be the ones suffering from that extra forty minutes as they have to simultaneously live in two different time zones at once. Hmm. Um, and this this plays into a, another area that I've thought about before too. Like, how do we end up keeping track of time in general when we start looking uh, towards an, an interplanetary future, where you have different lengths of days on different worlds, uh-huh. um, and then you have to deal with the the distance between those worlds, the the time delay in communication. In uh, some cases, you
0: might even have to deal with noticeable time dilation. Exactly. Yeah. If yeah. you're talking about uh like near light speed travel between different. I mean, the idea of time starts to lose its sense of universality when you're talking about an interplanetary species.
1: Yeah, it's a great example of taking a very terrestrial concept and then trying to make sense of it when we leave the planet, and I th- and you know there, we've we've touched on religion in that sense, and you know now we're talking about time and the human body. There, I, and I I can't even imagine how many different additions to that there are that we're not even thinking about. All the little things that add up to make uh, uh, interplanetary life all the stranger.
0: Totally, I. I, I was trying to think about it in the car on the way to work this morning. Like, how do you synchronize Mars time with Earth time? There's only 40 minutes difference each day, but mm-hmm. what do you do? Does, does Mars just have 39-point-something extra minutes that go up on the clock and then it resets to zero? Or I'm sure... Nobody would actually try to do this. But for a minute, my brain went to the place of, would you just make your minutes a little bit longer and have 24-hour days? or
1: Yeah, it gets very complicated. And, uh, and again, we have some experience with this in the way that, uh, that uh, NASA workers uh, looking after uh, any kind of operations on Mars have to – Add that forty extra minutes into their day.
0: Well, I've got another way that we are completely and totally adapted to Earth, and I think we haven't fully considered the ramifications of removing our culture to a non-Earth location, and that is microbiota. Ah, and this this is uh,
1: this is one I had never thought of either. But even though on the past on the show, we've done a number of episodes dealing with microbiota and and how essentially we're just this population of different bacteria uh, and different microbiotic organisms that all kind of work together as one spaceship.
0: Oh, totally. So, yeah, imagine you're a colonist on Mars. Where are you going to get your food? Well, I imagine you're going to be growing it, right? Yeah, or or you know, getting it from the the cube dispenser. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if you're an astronaut in the ISS, you can live on vacuum-packed shrimp cocktail for a couple months, and that's not going to kill you. On Mars, you can't take all your food with you right. when you go. You're going to have to somehow grow crops for yourself once you're at your semi-permanent colony on Mars. So maybe you could survive on hydroponics, like rooting uh, plants in nutrient-filled water, or maybe even aeroponics, like free-growing roots in the air fed by a nutrient-rich mist or spray. It makes sense. But there's a crucial question there we might not be taking into consideration. What happens when you drive a 140-million-mile wedge between earthlings and Earth's soil? Ah, because Mars is a microbiotic desert and this is a digression but i had to report that microsoft word wanted to change microbiotic desert to macrobiotic desert that's how that's how appalled uh <laughs> microsoft is at the idea of life on mars right so i read a really interesting article about this in slate uh from 2013 called our guts may hate mars and the author michael chorost makes the interesting point that the soil we live on isn't just an inert mass of stuff for plants to sit in. It's an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem of its own, like a rainforest or a coral reef. And it is teeming with life, including bacteria, insects, worms, protozoa. And this ecosystem is something that humans have never really tried to live without for years at a time. So a few considerations... One of them is the bacteria found in earth soil is probably important for maintaining your microbiotic profile, because as we were alluding to a minute ago, your body isn't just your body. You are a symbiont. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have legions of benign microorganisms that live inside you, for example, in your digestive system. And without healthy gut flora, humans can suffer serious consequences. Like what happens to you if you don't have healthy gut flora?
1: a lot of bad things can happen. I mean,
0: at at the very least
1: diarrhea in space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is a, bad thing to happen in space yeah and you know this reminds me too of uh some past episodes we've done on the show uh dealing with the problems of creating all these artificial environments that we live in now just talking about our you know our office spaces yeah where you have an entirely different microbiotic profile that emerges because it is separated from the soil separated from the natural uh microbiotic environment in which we live and that's just here on earth yeah. at your workplace
0: yeah and so in this article Choros points out that uh, scientists say organisms that live in the Earth's soil also provide countless, quote, ecosystem services uh, that go unnoticed, but which are really important for keeping the rest of life on Earth running smoothly. And these services include things like uh, the breakdown of dead organic matter, water filtration, carbon dioxide cycling. And he cites Justin L. Sonnenberg, a microbiologist and immunologist from the Stanford School of Medicine, who also says a couple of really interesting things. Uh, One of them is that the soil bacteria on Earth might make your food better. Hmm. So when you grow crops in the, the teeming micro jungle of Earth soil, the plants have to face off against enemies they have to face off against predators parasites of the ecosystem and this causes the plants to you know be like rocky when in the training montage it makes the plants strong and in getting strong they have to synthesize compounds like antioxidants that make the plants more nutritious for us when we eat them so without having to fight off the microbiotic uh onslaught The plants we eat wouldn't do all the same beneficial things for our bodies that they do here on Earth. Hmm. And this is just one example of the many ways the complexities of Earth's soil contribute to our well-being. The point is we don't know all of the ways that Earth's soil contributes to our well-being and to what extent we might be able to survive without it. And we might face health and well-being problems that are much bigger than we could have expected.
4: Is getting gas at Exxon burning a hole in your wallet?
2: Hyundai,
0: there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
3: This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
1: So we get to Mars and we're flabby and fightless uh, due to our our bone and muscle loss, Uh and then we're growing some sort of hydroponic Pumpkin to eat. That's equally flabby and fightless because it doesn't have to deal with the uh, with the with the natural uh, uh, predators and uh, microbiota that it has to that it has evolved
0: to combat. Yeah. How many ways Mars would make us soft? Yeah. Well, so there's one potential solution, right? What if we just shipped a bunch of soil with us to Mars? You so you just pack up dirt from Earth and you take it mm-hmm. and you protect it along the way because you don't want irradiated soil either. And then you grow your crops in that. Would, would that work? Probably not. And there are a couple of reasons. One of the things is that we've alluded to already is cost. It's unbelievably expensive to put mass into orbit. Uh, even more expensive to send it all the way out of Earth's gravity well, as we would need to do to get it to Mars. The old figure that was commonly cited was that it cost $10,000 per pound to put stuff into low Earth orbit. Right. Uh, with all the private space launch technology that's currently emerging or will emerge soon, that number is going to change. Who knows what it is today or what it will be. But I think it's safe to say it's still going to be very, very expensive and if you're on this corner-cutting Mars mission, they're not going to pony up for the Earth's soil. But there's a second point that's made by Dr. Sonnenberg uh, in this article. And that point is that it might not matter. Because in a closed environment, separated from the rest of Earth, Sonnenberg says that the biodiversity of a soil sample will tend to decrease over time until you no longer have the balanced microbiotic jungle that you're looking for in this soil.
1: Hmm. So you end up with just this dead soil, yeah. essentially. The soil but, dies like you would, you will. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is interesting. It brings to mind two two things. First of all, even though it would ultimately die, if we just needed to get soil into orbit, we could take the um, the Great Escape route, right? Or the uh, no, I guess it was um, I guess it was the Great Escape, and maybe it was Shawshank Redemption as well. Where they, uh, um, you, you have the, the problem of, right, if you're digging a hole to escape from a prison, you have to do something with the dirt. Yeah. So you just, uh, you, you, you sneak it out a little bit at a time. Right. Uh-huh. So maybe we just start putting like a pocket full of dirt into, uh, on, on board each astronaut as they go up.
0: Every space launch? Yeah. And- oh, that's a great idea. Every <laughs> time an astronaut goes to the ISS, they just take some fistfuls of soil.
1: Yeah. Of course, again, it doesn't really do much good if it's dead. Right. But uh, the, the other thing that kept entering my m- mind is we consider the possibility of organisms bringing their soil with them when they travel to a new land in order to, uh, t- to thrive and to, and to live uh, is, of course, Dracula. Because oh, I remember right. when Dracula yeah. left his home in Transylvania to begin life in uh, in London, he brought with him a bunch of that uh, that soil from his native land, right?
0: Yeah, and you actually see this in ancient religious concepts, too. Like the idea that uh, the god I worship is the god of my lands. Mm-hmm. And if I want to worship my god in a foreign land, I might want to take some soil from where I came from with me. So I'm still technically on the lands of my god when I worship him. Huh.
1: Well, there you go. There's some inter- That's probably some great food for thought uh, when it comes to any ast- ancient astronaut scenarios, right? Because clearly this idea was handed down to us by, quote-unquote, gods who traveled from another planet and had to bring their own soil because they were aware of the problems here, of yeah. venturing to a new world cut off from your, your Earth.
0: They were the reason the Colossus of Rhodes was anatomically correct. <laughs> uh, so so ultimately what will life be like separate from uh, from earth dirt we just don't know and the the prospects are intriguingly scary and I think this is something that needs to be researched very well before somebody makes that leap and says okay I'm a Martian now but there's another risk that you might run when you take the leap to say I'm a Martian now which is that you're not going to have a lot of room on Mars And you might not necessarily have a lot to do on Mars. And you're not going to be able to leave if you want to. Right. And you might be confined in this small space with several other people who you don't get to get away from if you don't like them.
1: And, and that's where space madness enters the,
0: the equation. That, right. We, we would be remiss if we did not talk about space madness. So yeah. what is the deal with psychological health on Mars?
1: Well, you know, we've already touched a little bit on how radiation could play into it. Uh, but, but yeah, just when we're dealing with the uh, the possibilities of dealing with a confined space, not much variety in your environment, um, certainly on the trip there, but even once you get there, you know you're 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 stuck in this little shell perhaps and then occasionally you get to engage in this very stressful jaunt out into the the dust ravaged landscape uh but uh but yeah you're opening yourself up to the psychological effects of of uh, of isolation and seclusion uh social isolation uh as well as just you know a, a lack of variety in your environment there've been you know countless studies that have looked at at how um isolation affects the the human mind yeah. how when we don't you know it comes back to to what we've evolved to live in we've evolved to live in this rather vibrant world of fixed and movable objects of interacting uh, people and things, yeah, and when you leave that. Your brain kind of starts gnawing on it, uh, creating the, uh, the varied stimuli that you have come to your brain has come to expect.
0: Yeah, so we're here on Earth, we're the mice on the mouse playground. On Mars, you might be the mouse in the tiny cage with nothing but a heroin button to push. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and And you better hope
1: that the, the heroin button works. And of course, yeah, the whole time you' you're, you're dealing with people, which can, of course just in any given environment can be stressful. And then on top of that, you are traveling through space. You are going to a distant right. world. You're dealing with all the stress of that, which is
0: only going to exasperate any of these other conditions. Yeah, you're possibly having uh, lung conditions, uh, serious lung conditions. You might be suffering from cancer. You might be suffering brain damage. You might be suffering weakness and bone density loss. You might be suffering from digestive distress, from lack of proper mi- microbiome. And then you've got to deal with all these jerks in a ten foot by ten foot space.
1: Yeah, it's uh, no, now, surely
0: not ten foot by ten foot. I just threw that out there. <laughs> However big the space would be, let's hope it's bigger than that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, you know it's an area that, that NASA's been looking into for a while, but it's also an area that we haven't had an extensive amount of of research on because for the most part, space flights are pretty busy. Uh, even when you're dealing with these longer uh jaunts up to uh, the ISS, because you, you have a lot a lot of that time is taken up by, you know, just getting acclimatized to the orbital environment, forcing down your food, making yourself sleep, uh braving the indignities of orbital to- toilet use. And then, of course, <laughs> yeah. conducting lots of experiments, repairs and all the exercise you have to do. Yeah. Hitting that uh, that Colbert treadmill up there. Um, there, there's plenty to do. So we're not we're not as yet dealing with the, the long-term uh, solitude issues, the, yeah. the very long-term isolation issues.
0: And people don't spend, you know, 6 to 12 years on right. the ISS. Yeah. But, of course, we're, NASA's
1: been looking into it, and they've studied how work, entertainment, and food – uh, can conquer the effects of solitude. The agency even invested, uh, 1.74 million in a virtual space station, a computer program designed to counsel astronauts about the emotional problems, about their emotional problems and insecurities. So we're essentially talking about the birth of robot psychologists here. Um, which uh which I I believe uh the movie Moon explored. Uh, yeah. we had the, the, yeah. the Kevin Spacey voiced uh psychologist robot that regularly checks in with our main character to uh to see how he's coping with this isolation.
0: I like that movie.
1: Yeah, it was fun. It had a number of cool sciencey topics, uh helium three, isolation and uh, a few others I don't want to spoil. But um uh, there, there was also a 2008 study that was conducted at uh, NHc Healthcare in Maryland Heights, uh, Missouri, and they found that the robotic dog uh, Aibo, or Abio, Ibo, Ibo, is that his I think name? It's Ibo, A I B O. That's the one. Yeah, he uh, he that that particular robot, he, she, whatever, was just as effective at decreasing human loneliness as a living, breathing dog. That's kind of weirdly depressing, but comforting because but, yeah, we we probably don't want to send a dog on one of these journeys. God yeah. knows it's, it's going to be difficult enough to send a human. But if you have a robot psychologist, a robot friend all wrapped up into one, maybe it's a robot dog psychologist, that can help mitigate the problems. Um,
0: yeah, I guess if you took a real dog to Mars, you'd have a big problem with, like, taking it out to do its business. Yeah, I mean. In the dust.
1: I've been watching a lot of shows uh recently that have uh, robotic humanoids in it um mm-hmm. the the excellent uh, humans show that's been airing on uh, AMC yeah, you can Channel tell 4. me
0: about that i've got to check it out
1: yeah it's pretty good um it, it makes me think like what you need to do is you need a robot family to send this uh this space uh, uh explorer with right you can't send him with his actual him or her with their actual
0: family you know, another way you could go is if you want to go down the total recall route, mm-hmm. the Quato route, and then you could have <laughs> a friendly companion in your body with you, like uh, Quato's. Uh, you know, well, mm. he, you have Big Marshall Bell, and then he has Quato in his stomach.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, well, you know, and maybe the the the, the form that could take is that essentially the uh, the AI uh, on your ship or in your suit. Like that is your buddy. Like your suit is your buddy. You talk to your suit, and your suit is analyzing your your uh, your, your, your levels and your, and your 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 current state of, of uh, physical fitness, and then also quizzing you about your mental health. So it's like David Hasselhoff
0: in his car. Right. What's the car called?
1: Um, smart car. Smart car. No, it? I don't think so. Not
0: how. Kit.
1: Kit. Kit's the, the yeah. two T's. There you go. Yeah. Because you need somebody to talk to. So talk to the computer. <laughs> Um, okay anyway it's you know it's not a perfect uh, perfect answer to well it, but uh, but it's one
0: we've been looking at tying back into our echo borgs uh, podcast I think we would need better chat bots before yes. this would make any sense otherwise you're just gonna be up there infuriated that it won't stop bringing up fruit trees
1: yeah I mean it comes back to the, the idea. <laughs> reminding
0: that- <laughs> you of the fruits you can't
1: get yeah I mean it comes back to the idea that there there are certain things that we've evolved to- as part of our lot li- to deal with as part of our lives. yeah, And we would be dealing with long-term um, extraction from that environment. And so what can we do to mitigate the effects of, uh, of removal from that environment uh, and or the recreation of that environment uh, on another planet and uh, during the voyage to that planet?
0: Yeah. So is your solution to try to simulate Earth on Mars or to try to recognize that your Mars habitat isn't Earth and deal with the problems as they arise. I don't
1: know. That's a tough one. I mean, maybe you try and find some sort of uh, space between. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, one of the elements from Philip K. Dix, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldrick. Um there, there these... I want to read it
0: just based on that title.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful book. It's one of his trippier uh, books, and, and really one of his, his best, in my opinion. Uh, but you have these uh, individuals uh, in space, and they take uh, this drug called Candy, which allows them to share the experiences of these perky pat layouts that they play around, which is essentially kind of like Barbie play uh, houses with little dolls. Huh. Um, but it also reminds me a lot of uh, the computer game The Sims, Oh, you, okay. you know, you really inve- end up, I haven't played it in, you know, over a decade, but I remember when it came out and I'm, I'm playing it, I remember how invested I felt in these, uh, these little, you know, non-existent characters and their little very, you know, one-dimensional lives. But, uh, but it reminded me even then a lot of, uh, of Perky Pat. And, uh, and of <laughs> course the, in, in this scenario, there's a, there's a pharmaceutical, uh, means of uh, of increasing your uh, involvement with perky Pat. so i don't know maybe it's a situation of giving the the astronaut a robotic family that looks after him and analyzes his uh his mental state and then also uh secretly you know pumping ecstasy in him the whole trip Um, maybe that's the the answer that's what i'm suggesting
0: we're going to have to be way less prudish about our methods to keep the astronauts truly happy.
1: Yeah, you kind of end up having to perhaps take that uh, that lab rat mentality, right? Yeah, well, this is maybe less a person and more uh, um, an experiment. This is more about the, the the living cargo and how do we keep the cargo uh, in uh, in shape for the duration?
0: Yeah, that is an interesting question. How. Uh... How mercenary do you want to be about keeping the astronauts on your Mars colony happy? Like, if you found that you could just give them a drug mm-hmm. that would make them, you know, sort of placated in the, in the Aldous Huxley sense, to go back to that, you know, if you could if you could make a brave new world on Mars and, and that was a pretty reliable way to keep the astronauts from going crazy, would you do it?
1: Yeah, I mean, and and it also just drives home. That we don't belong there. On right. In a, yeah. a, a very, very basic sense. Like, this is not our world. And it's, it's not, it's, it's completely inhospitable uh, to, to the human form. We want to go there. We want to go there to, to so that we can say, hey, we have been to Mars. And then in our, our grander visions of the thing, we want to recreate Earth life there. But is that, is that just kind of a ridiculous notion
0: that we, eventually have to get past yeah I don't know is it wishful thinking yeah. I don't want the takeaway from this episode to be let's not go to Mars right right I mean uh, I, I don't feel that way I'm in a lot of ways I, I support a very aggressive program of space exploration and, and colonization. But I think we're just highlighting how difficult this project is if we want to do it right. All yeah. of the things we have to learn, and all the things we don't—we're not even aware that we don't know about the dangers of space and Mars, and and, and colonization of other bodies in the solar system.
1: Indeed, the uh, the destination is hostile. The uh, the trip is dangerous and lonely, and those are realities we have to face. If we are actually going to send humans to Mars,
0: yeah. But if you're one of those people out there who's working on these problems right now, I salute you, and I and I say more people should support your efforts.
1: Indeed, yeah, I'm still 100 percent behind uh, putting a you know human on Mars. Uh, you know, hopefully- just one though. Just just one. Yeah, I don't think we should go crazy. Just <laughs> just one. Really, it should just be Val Kilmer. Just Val Kilmer, or uh, who's going to be in the the upcoming? Film about the, uh, about, I think it's Matt Damon. There's a film about the Martian. Yeah, I heard again. about that. I,
0: I haven't read that book, but I uh, hear good
1: things. Yeah, yeah? interesting. So, so we'll have to uh, we'll we'll have to revisit this topic when that film comes out. I guess. Okay. So there you have it. Your life as a Mars colonist. All uh, important stuff to think about before you uh, sign on the dotted line. Right. Hey, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you want to check out uh, our vast archive of videos, if you want to check out our blog posts, links out to our social media accounts, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership, and
0: that's where you will find everything. And if you want to let us know about an interesting solution you've read about or thought of to any of these uh, concerns we brought up today or a threat that your health might encounter on Mars that we didn't even think to include, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com
4: Constantly making trips to Home Depot? Introducing Drop, the app that rewards you for every shopping trip. Earn free gift cards for shopping. Download the Drop app now and use code DROP33 to get $5 in points.